Hello, this is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. Thanks for listening. As you longtime listeners know, I do live on a boat currently, and so you're going to hear some boat noises in the background. For you new listeners, I hope you enjoy today's case. We are going to take you to Otford, Australia. Otford is south of Sydney and is home to an old tunnel some claim is haunted. On August 14, 1912, John Joseph McNamara boarded a train to go to the races with some money burning a hole in his pocket. Legend has it that McNamara won big at the races and with his winnings caught the train home again. However, something happened to McNamara that night and his mangled body was found on the train tracks in the Otford Tunnel the next day. He was found to have injuries to his skull, chest, and neck and his money was gone. The Otford Tunnel closed in 1920 and became a mushroom farm. Now it's a deserted area, although rumors of an angry ghost are abundant. The tunnels are accessible, but please note they're on private property and trespassers could be prosecuted. The most common occurrences when in the tunnel include the scrambling of electronic devices, an icy hand on the back of your neck, and ghostly figures caught only out of the corner of the eye. If ghosts are real, then I hope the man I'm about to tell you about today has a ghost that sets Legos under his feet, makes his socks constantly slide into his shoes, and makes his entertainment always be buffering. Here we go. Maybe camping wasn't so bad. It was her first time, and she didn't hate it so far. It was a beautiful evening in March of 2005. The contrast between the cliffs and the coastline was breathtaking. The campsite was rocky and on a slope, but they managed to find a clear area to set up the tent. The spot they chose was about 5 meters or 25 feet from the edge of a 40 meter cliff, 120 feet for the very few countries who use the imperial system. The height made Janet uneasy. Heights had always scared her, but it was worth it to be able to enjoy some alone time with her new husband, Des. He loved the outdoors and camping, and he thought it would be romantic to bring her to this beautiful place. They'd been married for eight months, and the romantic night was a special treat, because they really hadn't been able to spend much time together. They'd been working in separate towns, but that was finally changing, and she had just moved into their marital home six days earlier. Des had packed some coffee and a nice bottle of Bailey's for them to share. Janet, or Jenny, as her family called her, was just happy to have him by her side. They spoke of their plans for the next day and enjoyed a cocktail as the sun began to go down. Earlier that afternoon, Des and Janet Campbell drove their car to an outlook area to set up the camp. It had been a busy morning. Des had excitedly bought the tent and sleeping bag, only just this morning after he had convinced Janet that today was a perfect day to camp. Des had driven, winding his way through a valley and a pretty stretch of woods to find the perfect spot. His location wasn't a regular designated camping area, but Des always liked his privacy, and he had told Janet he checked out this area a week or so ago. Janet was happy for the first time in a really long time. This was her second marriage, and she thought it would go as well or better than her first. She had been married to a local farmer named Frank Fisicaro. He had been the love of her life. Janet had been one of seven children. She was the only one to move to a property outside of town when she married Frank. Her sisters never thought she'd become a farmer's wife, but she found out she was quite good at it. She liked country life. 
She and Frank soon had a beautiful son named Stephen. They had 14 good years together, but tragically, Frank died from a heart attack at a very young age. Janet couldn't manage the farm on her own, so she sold it and moved back into town. She bought a house close to her parents and sisters, who she'd always been close to. They'd meet at their mom's house every Friday afternoon for tea and cake and catch up on family events. She'd been feeling so lonely since Frank died, and she spent a lot of time with her mother. Sometimes she'd visit as many as five times a day. Janet made friends easily and could talk to anyone. She was an open book and would tell anyone about herself and the loss of her husband. If you talked with her long enough, she'd share the fact that she had a farm but sold it and moved into town. And if you asked the right questions, you might find out that she was pretty well off after the sale of the farm. She wasn't rich by any means, but she wasn't living paycheck to paycheck, and that was a blessing for a single mom. She had a job in Deniloquin at a local hospital that she had really enjoyed. In fact, that's where she first met Des. He was a paramedic, and he began flirting with her. She was flattered. He was so sophisticated, and he spoiled her. He would take her out on fancy dates. He could be so charming, and he really liked her. She was nearing 50 years old and had been worried she'd never meet someone again. She wasn't really looking, but she was getting older. Her son was growing up and becoming more independent, and she was lonely. Des gave her attention, and she reveled in it. She fell head over heels in love with him and was thrilled when he finally proposed in March of 2004. They'd only known each other for a few months, but she knew he was the one. A few months ago... They bought a marital home near the park where they now camped. Janet had stayed back to tie up a few loose ends while Des moved his things into the house. It was much closer to his new job. Technically, Janet had paid the down payment for the $600,000 house. The new house cost twice as much as she had sold her house for, but it was perfect for them. She put the home in her name as well as her new husband's because he would eventually get relocation reimbursement pay from his company if his name was on the paperwork. That way, he could prove he was a homeowner and the $17,000 reimbursement package would go towards the monthly payments. As far as Janet knew, the couple were still waiting for the relocation money. She tried not to worry about money, though. That was an area Des liked to manage. Des felt good about the financial part of their relationship. In fact, he had convinced her to quit her job at the hospital in order to move into their new home. He just wanted to be married and have her by his side. He wanted to take care of her and keep her to himself. Janet's boss was surprised when she made the announcement that she was quitting. Her boss had asked Janet, what will you do if he leaves you? But Janet had no worries about that. She'd always been such a hard worker that her boss gave her a leave of absence for a year instead of letting her resign, just in case Janet changed her mind. But Janet wasn't coming back. Des Campbell heard a strange noise outside the tent. It sounded like a sigh or a moan or maybe an exhale. Janet had just gone outside to pee. As she exited the tent, he told her to head the other direction, as he had pooped earlier in the direction she was going. He didn't want her to accidentally step in it. When he heard the noise, he called out, What have you done now? And when he didn't get a reply, he got up and walked out of the tent. He didn't see her anywhere. She thought his wife was playing a game, so he called out, What the fuck are you doing? He searched the campsite and even looked over the cliff edge, 
but didn't get too close because he was a bit touchy about big drop-offs. That's when he had the horrible feeling she'd gone over the edge. He had been relieved when he looked over the edge of the cliff and couldn't see Janet, but where else could she be? He had a terrible sense of foreboding. He grabbed the rope from inside the tent and tied it to a tree near the cliff. He then proceeded to scale down to the bottom to look for her. There was nowhere else she could have gone in such a short period of time. She had to have fallen. At the base of the cliff he saw her. She seemed to be sitting, almost leaning back, against a rock as if waiting. Des said, for a split second, I felt relief because I thought she was all right and she was just sitting there waiting for me. But the waves were splashing up on her body and she wasn't moving. He struggled, dragging her body out of the waves. He tried to revive his wife, but there was nothing he could do. She was dead. He broke down in tears, screaming and hugging her body. She'd only gotten up to go for a pee, and now here she is dead, at the bottom of a cliff. Des hadn't brought his mobile phone because he thought there wouldn't be service at the campsite, but luckily he had brought an EPIRB. EPIRB stands for Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. We've talked about this in previous episodes. He turned it on, and a rescue signal went out about 7.30 p.m. A rescue helicopter was dispatched and arrived about two hours later. The rescuers were surprised to see that someone was at the beach rather than in the ocean, as they had expected. A paramedic was winched down from a helicopter. He could see Janet wedged between some rocks in amongst the waves. He saw Des Campbell sitting on some rocks a few feet away on drier ground. Des was lifted into the helicopter and flown to St. George Hospital. A second helicopter was dispatched to pick up Janet's body. Campbell was in shock and at times was crying. Police, rescue staff, and hospital staff made a note of it. He was interviewed and his statements, as I just told them to you, were entered into evidence. An autopsy was performed on Janet. She died from the fall. The doctor had found a blood alcohol level of .02, which is negligible and wouldn't have affected her balance. No other drugs were found in her body that would have impaired her abilities either. The following day, investigators went out to the campsite to make a report. They found that right near the cliff edge was an extremely steep slope. It was also rocky and covered with loose gravel. There were trip hazards, and the gravel meant it was also slippery. They found shoe prints belonging to Janet, as well as blood and tissue, at several points going down the cliff. An accident certainly could have occurred here, but this is a true crime podcast, and you've probably seen this coming. Questions would be raised as to whether Janet was pushed off the cliff. When Therese Rourke was given the heartbreaking news that her eldest sister, Janet, Jenny Fizzicaro, had died, her first words were, how did he do it? Therese was a no-nonsense mother of five, and she didn't know how or where her beloved sister died, but she knew with 100% certainty that Des Campbell was the one responsible. Janet's family would soon find out that Janet had secretly married Des. Her family told police that Janet had been dating Des for about six months before the family even knew about it. They were shocked because she was so close to her family and always shared her life with them. On reflection, they had noticed some oddities. Janet would get text messages, or she'd be having a cup of tea with her mom and her phone would ring. Instead of answering it like she had in the past, 
She would go outside to answer the phone call. Or she would disappear into her car or somewhere else. She never said anything about Des until she called asking the entire family around for tea one night. Janet announced that she met a person she thinks the entire family would like, and that he was just like Frank. The family was excited to meet this man who stole Jenny's heart, but found him to be the complete opposite of Jenny's first husband. They said Des just sat there. He didn't mingle. He didn't show any affection towards her or make any conversation. Jenny's sisters smelled a rat, and they weren't alone. When the townsfolk heard that Jenny and Des were together, people would approach the family, telling them that Des was a gold digger. He had a reputation of asking people what their portfolio was within the first five minutes of a conversation. Jenny's family tried to warn her, but she stood up for him, telling him that he had changed and that they were wrong. He never treated her like that, and everyone deserved a second chance. Two days after that first family introduction to Des, Jenny called her sisters to announce that she was engaged. This raised eyebrows, and she was asked what the rush was and how well did she really know Des. They asked Janet what her son Stephen thought and advised her to make sure the newly engaged couple had a nice long engagement in order to get to know each other better. Janet reassured them that she would be careful, but they really had nothing to worry about. Janet's sister Mary, who worked at the hospital with her, announced her sister's happy news to their colleagues during a work night out. To her surprise, Des was livid. He was so angry, and he let it be known. Mary said, apparently, the engagement was supposed to be a secret. The next day, Janet told Mary that the engagement, more or less, was off. Des was furious because he claimed to be fiercely private. He didn't want the world to know his personal life, and Janet was heartbroken. The next thing Mary knew, the engagement was back on. Janet had her ring, and they were once again back together. Mary never said anything after that. She kept her mouth shut, and from then on, their bubbly sister Janet, who loved to share the most intimate details of her life, became increasingly secretive. Despite having been exceptionally close to her family, Janet married Des Campbell in secret in September of 2004. The only guests were two hotel staff members to act as witnesses. One of the witnesses would later say the lovely bride looked sad, especially when she was asked about her absent son and family. It was noted that no one took a single photo. Police thought this was odd, as was Des' behavior, and with the encouragement of Jenny's family, they began to look into Des's cell phone and electronic records. What they found out was just the tip of a giant shit iceberg that is Des Campbell. On March 26th, less than two days after Janet's death, Des Campbell was texting a woman named Gorizia Velenkansky. He called her with the intent of hooking up. The following day, he went to a travel agency to talk about booking a trip to Asia. Gorizia had no idea what was going on in Des' personal life, especially in regards to Janet. She didn't know he was married or even had a girlfriend. Des asked Gorizia whether she had a passport and if she wanted to take a vacation with him for a holiday. Des booked a trip for the two of them, telling the travel agent that he would be traveling with his wife. My name is Mike Morford. Some of you may know me as co-host of the podcast Criminology. I'd like to tell you about a solo podcast that I host, which is very close to my heart. It's called The Murder of My Family. We've all heard about horrible murder cases in the news, both solved and unsolved. Most of the time, 
We listen for a moment and then go about our daily routine. But have you ever wondered who those murder victims were? Or thought about their backgrounds? They're more than a blurb in the news or a statistic. They were real people living real lives. They were someone's child, parent, sibling, or friend. In The Murder of My Family, I try to get to know those victims with the help of the people that knew them best, their family members. Together, we talk about the lives and tragic deaths of their loved ones, as well as the ripple effect the murderers had on surviving friends and family. Some of the episodes feature high-profile cases you're probably familiar with, like the Colonial Parkway murders, the Delphi murders, or the Golden State Killer murders. But many other cases are ones from small towns all over America that barely made the news. There are dozens of episodes of The Murder of My Family available right now to binge on. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Three days after Janet's death, a call was made on her phone to vote for one of the contestants on X Factor. Does that seem like someone who's mourning the loss of his new wife? It gets much worse. On March 31st, about a week after her death, Des's brother finds out about Janet's death. He finds out because he received a message of condolence for Des coming through on his phone. Des had given his brother his old phone, and this message alerted his brother to Janet's death. Odd thing was, his family didn't even know he was married. Des also didn't tell his own family about his wife dying. His father would later testify to this in court. Intensely private, my ass. This man was hiding things. On April 2nd, Des left for a short vacation with Garizia. While on vacation, they ate, drank, went sightseeing, and had sex. Sounds like an ideal vacation, except his wife hadn't even been buried yet. This man's audacity is off the chart. Garizia and Des got into a fight on April 4th. So Des packed his bags and took off, leaving Garizia to lick her wounds. On April 5th, Campbell made a payment to a dating site so he could find more women to date. The next day, he made contact with several of the women in the site, and he had plenty of time on April 6th to converse with these women. But you know what he didn't have time for? He didn't have time to go to his wife's funeral. That's right, he skipped it entirely. He didn't attend the funeral of the woman who he had just married. The woman who left her job for him, who lent him money to pay for some of his bills, who paid the down payment for their new house. It was clear that he was indifferent to his wife. It would be found eventually that Des had been dating two other women while he was dating, engaged, and then married to Janet. One of these was Gorizia Velenkansky, another was named Linda Rogers. On April 10th, in an attempt to reconcile with Des, Gorizia went to his home in Otford to bring him a gift. Des told her to stay at his house. He had a singles party he was attending and that he would see her later. He returns home to his house that evening and asks Gorizia to move in with him. Seriously, he already has a new woman living in him and Janet's home. Gorizia would later testify that she stayed with him for a few weeks, and during that time she saw no female clothes, toiletries, or anything that would indicate that a woman lived there with him. What she did find was a wedding card. She was caught reading the card, and Des once again lost his temper and began yelling at her. This seems to be a pattern. He would throw temper tantrums, and then he would be sweet in order to get something he wants. Somehow, Des convinced Garizia that he wasn't married, but he also told her that if police asked anything about him, she should say she doesn't know him. 
He must have been feeling like his world was beginning to close in. At the same time, Janet's family was asking for her personal belongings, but Des wouldn't give them to her. In fact, they even went by the house one day to get her things. Des closed the door in their faces and locked it. He then shut all the shades and called the police to force her family to leave. My guess is that he was hiding Garizia, or her things. A neighbor reported seeing Des burning things in the back of his property, and it was believed they were Janet's belongings. In the month after Janet's death, Des put the house up for sale. It eventually sold for $100,000 less than what they had bought it for a few months earlier. He pocketed about $100,000 from the sale, because Janet had bought it with her money. He didn't care that it was sold at a loss. All he cared about was that he could walk away with a good deal of cash. Two months after Janet's death, Des withdrew $30,000 from their joint account and traveled to the Philippines to see another woman who he had met on the Internet. She was a former nightclub singer who would become his fourth wife. She would also go on to have two of his children. Later, she would claim she knew nothing about his past or the type of person he was. In fact, she found out about it by reading the paper. He never told her what was going on back at home. By August, about six months after Janet died, police would search the house. On Des' computer, there were photos of family and friends, but none of his wife. There were saved photos of many of the women that he went on holidays with, but not one single photo of Janet. Police decided they would study what they now believe to be the crime scene a little bit more. They studied the footprints, and they found them to be of someone who was not walking normally, but rather of someone who was being forced or pushed outwards and down the cliff. Someone who was desperately trying to dig in their feet or resist being pushed forward. This wasn't enough to convict, so they began looking closer at Des and Janet's relationship and his background. Very few of Des Campbell's old acquaintances in Britain would have had any sympathy or empathy for the former policeman. They knew him as a ruthless sexual predator, a brutal mercenary, and a merciless womanizer. This came as no surprise to those who knew him during his days with the Surrey police. Des Campbell emigrated to Australia with his parents when he was young, but he returned to Britain as an adult. On June 5, 1995, he joined the Surrey police force as a constable. He was based in Cranley, near Guildford, but three years later he left under a cloud of suspicion. A woman he had been dating accused him of indecently assaulting her. The papers were sent to the Crown Prosecution Service, but no legal action was taken. Des was warned that he would have to face an internal disciplinary inquiry, and instead he chose to resign. This was history repeating itself, because he had also resigned from a previous job as a police officer for the Victorian police. He became a senior constable, but resigned in 1994. He'd been married and divorced twice by this time. He was suspended without pay by the Victorian police after several disciplinary charges were held against him. Des later gave an interview with the Herald Sun reporter, saying racism, corruption, beating victims, planting drugs, and fabricating charges were common practice in the drug squad, and he just fell in with the rest of the group. It's truly impossible to underestimate this man. One of his former colleagues and lovers recounted a two-year affair that Des had with her that she regrets to this day. Her name was June Ingram. 
She told a Daily Mail journalist that her relationship with Des left her heartbroken and penniless. She claimed to still be battling depression brought on by the breakup with Campbell six years earlier. June was a traffic warden when she met him. They met while working at the police station in 1999 and began an affair. June was still married at the time. She said, I was a traffic warden and he was a police officer. I was married and just saw him as a colleague. He pursued me for a while and eventually I agreed to go out with him. He's no George Clooney, but he has the gift for gab and was very charming. He took me out, wined and dined me, and soon he was promising me the world. He then went on to invite her to Australia and promised her a good life with him. An inspector at the police station warned her that Des wasn't to be trusted, but by this point she claimed she'd fallen under his spell. For her, love was blind, and deaf, apparently. It was around this time that Des resigned from the police department because of the woman who alleged a domestic violence complaint against him. The charge was indecent assault, but June had no idea. All she knew was that Des had just disappeared. He left Britain. He got back in touch with her a few weeks later, but wouldn't tell her what happened, just that he'd been falsely accused of something. He had returned to Australia. During the time apart, their relationship became more intense. June said that Des would call her constantly and ask her to come over and visit him. She did, and she had a great time. It gave her a taste of the life that Des claimed he could give her. He got inside her head and slowly took over. June choked back tears as she recalled that signs of what was to come were always there. She said he wasn't very affectionate, he wouldn't hold her hand in public, but the sex was good and he always knew the right things to say to reassure her that he cared. June eventually left her husband, sold their family home, and accepted Des's invitation to move to Australia, where they would soon get married. She traveled there to be with her new man, and was planning a perfect future together. As soon as she arrived to start their new life, she was unnerved by his behavior. When she arrived at the airport, he greeted her with a big hug, and then they went out to a romantic dinner and back to his hotel room to have sex. Afterwards, he began asking her about money and how much she was going to get in her divorce settlement. The final figure was about 28000 and was much lower than she had originally thought it would be. When she told Des, he became angry and abusive. He told her that she lied to him and was swearing and shouting at her. She said, it was like he was a different person. It scared me. He screamed at me, you effing bitch. You told me you were going to get more. They didn't talk after that, and the next morning he made her get into his car. He drove her to the airport, threw her bags into the road, and left her there. She had given up everything for him, and now she thought it was over. He had isolated her from family and friends, just like he'd done with Janet, by telling her to keep things secret and getting angry when she didn't. It still hadn't occurred to June that he wanted her for her money, but that would happen soon enough. She stayed the night in a hotel in Australia alone. The next day, Des calls apologetic and remorseful. She accepted his apologies, which was a decision she would live to regret. It was a turning point in their relationship. After that night, June admitted that she was desperate to please her lover. The next day, she spent 25000 on a sports car for him. After a few weeks traveling back and forth between England and Australia, Des persuaded June to buy a house for them in Australia. 
They sold the car and used the money for a down payment on the new home. He put the house in his name because he had told her she wasn't an Australian resident, so the house couldn't be put in her name. She only knows now that she was being manipulated. A few weeks after the purchase of the house, she was visiting friends in England. Her daily phone calls with Des grew shorter and shorter by each passing day, and eventually he wouldn't return her calls at all. Then she received a text message from Des saying, It's over. I'm getting back together with my ex-wife, and I don't want to discuss it any further. After that, he wouldn't take her calls and wouldn't answer any messages. He broke her heart, and that was the last time she would ever hear from Des. She had given him all her money, all her savings, and she was left with nothing except the kindness of friends who put a roof over her head. He sold the house, keeping all the profits, never giving her a cent. Another woman, a former girlfriend, was named Linda Rogers. She said that Des spent more than a thousand dollars on fine food and champagne to seduce her at an exclusive hotel in Melbourne, only a few months before he married Janet. One month after Janet died, he sent her explicit emails and asked her to go on an overseas holiday with him. He was wooing her at the same time he was marrying someone else, and then later, when he should have been a grieving widower. By now, it's extremely obvious that Des was using Janet for her money. Before they were married, she gave him money, including $23,000 he used to pay off credit cards after lying and telling her that it was to repay the mortgage on his parents' home. He also took the $17,000 relocation money from the ambulance company, placing it in his own account and telling Janet he hadn't received it yet. After they were secretly married in September, Janet made a new will, changing it to benefit not just her son, but also her new husband. Each would receive half of her estate. Her will had been changed in August to benefit her son, but only a month later, Des encouraged her to change it to include him as well. Janet had paid for their marital home at Hartford near the National Park, but Campbell lived there by himself for quite a long time while he claimed to be attending a work-required course. During that time, Janet still lived back in her hometown, and Des took the opportunity to bring his various girlfriends into his and Janet's new home. When the case finally went to trial, witnesses heard the testimonies as I have told them to you. They also heard from Des's ex-sister-in-law, Tony Sanderson. She said that she and her then-husband visited his brother in Daniloquin in April or May of 2004. Des had told his sister-in-law about Janet, describing her as being so ugly you'd have to chew your arm off if you woke up next to her. Des' brother overheard the disparaging conversation as well. Tony said she was upset about the way Des was denigrating the woman, and when he showed her a photo of Janet, Tony commented how she looked lovely. He told her, I don't know if I have got it in me to sleep with her, but I really want that car. Later that year, after the secret marriage, Tony said she and her husband, Neil, Des's brother, stayed in Des and Janet's beautiful new home in Otford. She said he made no mention of being married or of having been a co-owner of the house. While they were there, she said a female friend of Des, Garizia Velenkansky, also stayed in the house and shared his bedroom. Danelle Quinn hospital worker Colin Sander told the Supreme Court that Des said he wasn't engaged to Janet. He would never be engaged to Janet, and if she didn't stop 
stalking him, he was going to put the equivalent of a restraining order on this bitch. His words, not mine. Despite the denial, Mr. Sanders said he regularly saw Janet's car parked outside Dez's home. Dez attempted to defend himself, saying the comments were made in a joking vein. Dez's parents also gave evidence at the trial, saying they knew nothing about their son's marriage to Janet until after her death. Dez sobbed as his father testified. In May of 2010, five years after Janet's death, Des Campbell was found guilty of the murder of Janet Campbell. The verdict came an hour after the judge told them they were able to return a majority verdict if 11 of them were in agreement. On hearing the guilty verdict, Des blinked but showed no emotion. He was given a 33-year sentence, and I believe justice was served. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to Twisted Travel and True Crime. Take a minute to give it a good rating and review and maybe tell a friend. Any of those would make my day. As always, I wish for you nothing but the best. Fair winds and following seas on this journey called life.